shoes that are a whole lot more comfortable than church chairs. I mentioned earlier that I refereed high school basketball for 22 years. I don't know how much you know about high school basketball officials, but despite what a lot of people think, they don't just put us out there on the court without some training. We have to take a bunch of classes, and in the classes they teach us two things, basically. They teach us the rule book, and they teach us our court responsibilities. Well, one of the things that they taught me early on in my basketball officiating career is they taught us that if we're at a game where we're not officiating, they said it's really best that you not sit in the stands and cheer for one team or another. The reason for that is a coach from another team might see you cheering for a certain team and then later in the season have you as an official against that team and think that you are biased in favor of that team. So when I first got into officiating, that was kind of a hard thing for me to go to games and not get into the moment. Um, I used to scream and holler with the best of them, not at officials, but just in a positive way. But I remember one time years ago going to a high school basketball game at Hammondsport. It was a boys game, and they were playing against Prattsburg that night. And that year I was kind of following the Prattsburg boys basketball team. In those days, as you walk into the Hammondsport gym, there was a set of bleachers that ran the whole length of the gym. In those days, the first section was usually where the visiting spectators would sit. I was there to cheer for Prattsburgh, so I thought, well, I'll look up in the stands and see if there's anybody here that I know from Prattsburgh to sit with. I didn't recognize anybody. My eyesight continued down to the middle section of bleachers, which in those days were usually where the people sat who weren't too vocal one way or another. They just didn't have anything better to do on a Friday night, so they went to a high school basketball game. Then the far section of bleachers in those days was usually where the visiting or where the home spectators would sit. I looked down and I saw all of these students from Hammond Sport. I was on staff at Family Life Ministries at the time. I was running a youth group in Paltney, which is within the Hammond Sport School District. And I saw two of the 8th grade girls that were in my youth group, Heidi and Cindy. I'm in my late 20s at the time. So I decide to plant myself in the middle of the high school, Hammondsport High School student body between these two 8th grade girls that I knew from my youth group. The only problem was I was there to cheer for Prattsburg. And so every time Hammondsport would make a great play, Everybody around me would scream and holler, including the guys in the back row who were standing with their shirts off and had masks that they made out of half of basketballs. And um, throughout the first quarter, whenever Hammond Sport would make a great play, everybody would scream and holler, and I'd sit there like, oh, that was a nice play. Then when Prattsburg would make a great play, I would scream and holler, and everybody around me would look at me like, who is this guy in his late 20s? Well, this went on through the first quarter and into the second quarter. As the second quarter started, um, one of these eighth grade girls had had enough of her youth leader. (laughs) And with all the composure that an eighth grade girl can say to her youth leader who's in his late 20s, she turned to me and she said, Brian, would you please sit down? You're embarrassing us. (laughs) I learned something that night. 
I learned that it doesn't work to go to a game, sit with one crowd, and cheer for the other team. I needed to make a choice. What I really needed to do, if I was going to continue to sit with the Hammondsport crowd, I needed to start cheering for Hammondsport. If I was going to continue to cheer for Prattsburgh, I should have gotten up and moved to the Prattsburgh section. I needed to make a choice. Life is full of choices. Those of you that are in high school will one day get called into the guidance office and you will sit down with your guidance counselor and you will map out what courses you're going to take in high school. Whether you're going to take a college prep track, whether you're going to take a vocational track or a business track. You have to make a choice. Then as you get ready to graduate from high school, you start considering colleges. And you look around, you do your research across the country, and you find two good Christian colleges that both offer what you're interested in. One of those happens to be in Virginia, and the other one happens to be in California. And you really can't narrow it down between the two, so you decide, well, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'll enroll in classes in the college in Virginia, and Tuesday and Thursday, I'll enroll in classes in college in California. Would not work. You have to make a choice. Then as you finish college and you get a little older, um, you find yourself thinking about your future and relationships. And you find yourself in a situation that a college guy found himself in one night who came to me. He was helping me lead a youth action club for family life here in the Alfred Allman School District years ago. We're sitting in uh, Lee and Donna Ryan's house, and this young man comes up to me and says, Brian, you know, after the teens leave tonight, do you have a few minutes we can talk? I've got some things going on in my life. And I said, okay. So uh, we finished our youth action meeting. All the teens left. This college student and I were sitting there, and he explained to me his situation. He said, Brian, there's this young lady that I've been spending some time with. And when I find myself with her, I find myself thinking about what it would be like to be married to her. I said, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You're at the age where you're considering those things. He said, yeah, but here's my problem. There's this other girl. And when I'm with her, I find myself thinking about what it would be like to be married to her. And he was coming to me with some godly, for some godly wisdom and direction. And you're going to see why I'm in youth ministry and not in a counseling ministry. Because <laughs> at that point, I summoned all of the biblical training that I'd had, and I came out with a very profound statement. I said, you need to make a choice. <laughs> you see, it would not be would not work for this young man to marry young lady A and then continue to spend all of his time with young lady B. The two would not be compatible. In our adult world, we also have to make many choices. And in the Bible, there are a number of people who also had to make choices. And so if you have your Bible with you here at the cabin tonight, I invite you to turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. If I had the opportunity this evening to be present in any event in Scripture, this would probably be one of my first choices. We're going to read the background here before we actually get into the story. If any of you have grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the story, but hopefully God will use it in your life this evening. Start in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 39. 
In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel. He reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So here's the situation in the scripture. Um, Ahab, the king, has led the people into being multi-God worshipers. They were still worshiping the God, Jehovah, that you and I would worship. But in addition to that, they had added the worship of some of the gods of their culture. In their situation, the Baal and Asherah gods. And the people saw nothing wrong with this. It was um, kind of like having a spare god in your back pocket. You know, if you had a need, you could pray to Baal. If Baal didn't answer, you'd pray to Jehovah. And the people saw nothing inconsistent with this. But of course, the Old Testament scriptures, God tells us that we're to have no other gods besides him. And so God was not pleased with the Israelites at this point, so he sends a prophet by the name of Elijah in chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elisha, or Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So God sends a drought on the nation through the prophet Elijah. Well, of course, this didn't make Elijah the most popular guy around. And so you know the story. God sends Elijah off into hiding for about three or three and a half years. Chapter 17 tells us the account of that. Meanwhile, Ahab is under a lot of pressure from the people in his kingdom. Um, being an agricultural society, they depended upon rain to grow their crops. And so as time goes on, as the drought gets worse, people are coming to Ahab and saying, Ahab, you know, we don't, we don't have any, any food to feed our family. What are you going to do? Well, Ahab was holding Elijah responsible for the drought. So he's got, work part, or he's got search parties out looking for this prophet Elijah. And all of a sudden, in chapter 18, verse 1, the scripture says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I'll send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. I submit to you this morning that at this moment, the Israelites were a lot like a lot of Christians today. I believe today we have a lot of people who are multi-God worshipers. On Sunday, they come to church and worship the God of the Bible. And then on Monday to Saturday, they worship the gods of their culture. As I look at the world around us today, I see a lot of other gods that people have raised to the same level as Jehovah God. For some people, those other gods in their life, some of them, it's money. That making money is just as important to me as following and serving Jehovah God. In the Old Testament days, they used to create 
other gods to worship, many times out of metals that they would mold down and make in the shape of an animal. Today, we don't do that in America, but today in America, we have other gods that are made out of metal that a lot of people worship. Some of them have nameplates on them, like Ford, Chevy, Dodge. There's a lot of people today that worship the god of material things. There's a lot of people today that that worship the God of popularity. Oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, I go to church on Sunday. But equally as important is popularity, whether it's in school or in the workplace. Another God that I think we see a lot among Christian folks is the God of family. Now there's nothing wrong with family, obviously God made family, but God never intended family to become something that we worship. And I know people who, to them, family gatherings, relatives, is, is everything. Even, even more important than God or church or serving the God that created them. And so today, I submit to you that in many ways, we're not a whole lot different than the Israelites were at this point. Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold fast to the one and despise the other. No man can serve two masters. The Israelites were trying to do that. They were trying to serve Jehovah God and Baal God. So we pick up in verse 16, where it says, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? See, again, Ahab wasn't taking responsibility for his actions. He didn't think that his actions were the cause of the drought. He thought it was all Elijah's fault. I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And so at this point, Elijah proposes a little battle that many of you are familiar with. He says, summon the people from all over Israel and have them meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here we see the extent of our idolatry. The king had 850 people on his payroll to help them worship these pagan gods. They would be like pastors would be in our culture, in our setting. And so Ahab goes down to the local print shop. He has some four-color posters printed up. He distributes them to all the convenience stores and all the 7-Elevens in the nation. And the posters basically say this, Come one, come all, to the battle of the universe, the WWF championship of the world. Location, Mount Carmel. Tickets, free. And so people come from all over the land of Allegheny County and Staben County. And this evening, I would like you to imagine us on Mount Carmel. You're no longer sitting in the comfortable couches here at my cabin. You're not even sitting in the semi-comfortable chairs of Alfred Allman Bible Church. But you are sitting on the ground here on Mount Carmel. Now, just a couple things out of um, facts. Mount Carmel was considered the sacred dwelling place of Baal. 
In addition to that, the Baal gods and the Asherah gods were the gods of crops and rain and the abundance in their life. And so we're gathered this morning on Mount Carmel. And here in our midst, we have three groups of people. We have those who only worship and serve the Baal gods. That group this morning numbers 850, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. Here on the mountain this morning, we've got those who only serve Jehovah God. That group this morning numbers one person, the prophet Elijah. And then there's the rest of us who have come from all over the region because we heard there was going to be this great battle. Now, what do you think the prophets of Baal are thinking? They're probably thinking, man, this isn't going to be any challenge at all. There's 850 of us and only one of him. On top of that, they're thinking, not only that, we've got home court advantage. We're playing it on our turf. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. In other words, Elijah, that makes sense. Let's find out once and for all who is the true, supreme, almighty God. Now, what I appreciate about Elijah here is he was fair. He said, hey, we're going to have a little battle. And if Baal wins the battle, put aside following Jehovah and you follow Baal. That's the logical thing to do if he wins the battle. But likewise, he said, hey, if Jehovah wins the battle, put away your Baal gods and follow him. And so the people are waiting with great expectation. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Baal, he has 450 prophets. Now get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, and not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Now, Elijah never says anything to the effect of, well, you know, if, if Jehovah God wins and I follow him, Will life be easier for me? He never tells them that. He doesn't tell them if you follow the God that wins the battle, you're going to be more financially profitable. He doesn't tell them if you follow the God that wins the battle, you'll be happier. He doesn't tell them if you follow the God that wins the battle, you'll have more peace of mind. But he said the logical thing to do is to follow the God that wins the battle. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls first and prepare it, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given to them, and they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, from nine o'clock till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. Three hours, they're sitting there on the mountain, on the hard ground. 
850 prophets are crying out and saying, Baal, hear us, send down fire, show these people that you're God. And nothing's happening. And some of the people start whispering. And Tyler whispers to Matt and says, hey, Matt, you know, we could be home doing something else rather than sitting here on this hard ground for three hours. Someone else says, yeah, you know, we could be off um, playing video games or something. They began to dance around the altar that they'd made. They thought, well, maybe the reason God isn't answering us is he doesn't think we're sincere. Maybe if we show some emotion, he'll think we're sincere. And there are people today in their worship that think that you have to show emotion to be sincere. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion in worship, but it's not crucial to the process. Well, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Maybe he's in deep thought. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's off traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, which was 3 p.m. They've been on the mountain now for six hours. Nothing's happening. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. Now let me pause here for a moment and ask you a question. Were these prophets of Baal and Asherah sincere? Very much so. The problem, though, was the object of their sincerity. And there are people in our world, in our culture today, that are very sincere in their religious activity. Some of them come knocking at our doors in pairs. Very religious but the wrong object of their sincerity. And that was the problem with these prophets of Baal. Well, then Elijah said to the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayes of seed, about four gallons. He arranged the wood. He cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And the people are sitting there thinking, what's with the water? I thought the object was to burn the sacrifice. Now also remember, there's been a drought for three and a half years. They're on a mountaintop. To fill these four large jars with water, somebody was going to have to hike down the mountain, find a stream that hadn't dried up, or maybe the Mediterranean Sea, cart this water all the way back up the hill. Kind of building a little bit suspense. They take these four large jars of water and pour it on the wood. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time until the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at this point, the Lasnicks, who are experienced campers, are sitting there saying, that's not going to burn. That's too water-soaked. We've done enough camping. Well, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. 
He didn't rant and rave. He didn't scream and holler. He didn't dance around the altar. He didn't cut himself. But one man of God prayed a very simple prayer that may have lasted all of 30 seconds. And this was his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. And what happens after his 30-second prayer? The fire of the Lord fell. It burned up the sacrifice, the woods, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord! He is God! The Lord! He is God! And for at least a period of time in the history of their nation, They put away their worship of the Baal gods. I would have loved to have been there that day on the mountain to see the power of my God. And though I was not there that day, I get to experience that as I dig in to God's holy word. Let me ask you this morning, how big is your God? It's those victories that increase my faith And help me realize how mighty, how powerful my God is. That's why I love hearing testimonies of of people coming to know Christ from, from backgrounds that are far from Christ. It shows the power of my God. Well, I submit to you this morning, there was three things God was asking of the Israelites. Number one, he was asking them to examine the evidence. He said, Witness this battle, see the evidence of who is really God. This morning, in our lives, God is asking of us to examine the evidence for the claims of Jesus Christ. This morning, most of you have examined the evidence for the claims of Jesus Christ. You've heard the gospel. You've heard that that Jesus is God's son, that he left heaven, that he came to this earth, lived a perfect life. At the end of that life, suffered a very agonizing death on a cross, was crucified, buried, in the grave for three days, and three days later, he rose from the dead. You've heard that. You've examined the evidence. But we live in a world where there's a lot of people that are afraid to examine the evidence. You teenagers go to school with some of them. They're kids when you invite them to Epic and they say, well, what is that? And you say, it's, it's our church youth group. They say, oh, that, that Christianity stuff, that Bible stuff, that's for a bunch of you know, weaklings, a bunch of balonies. I don't believe that stuff. And you say to them, well, have you ever read the Bible? And they say, read it? No, I don't believe it. They're afraid to examine the evidence for the claims of Jesus. There's a lot of adults in our world that are afraid to examine the evidence for the claims of who Jesus is. Years ago, there was a university student who was very much a non-believer. And he came to the realization one day that if he could disprove two historical facts, he felt he could wipe out Christianity. Those two facts were the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the miraculous conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. The university student's name was Josh McDowell. So Josh McDowell began doing his academic research. He 
researched what the scriptures had to say. He researched what history books had to say about Jesus. Now remember, he went into this with the belief that Christianity was a bunch of baloney. But after examining the evidence for the claims of Jesus, Josh McDowell came to the exact opposite conclusion to what he previously had. And so today, God is asking of us to examine the evidence. The second thing God was asking the Israelites here is after you've examined the evidence, make a decision. There's a lot of people in our world today that have examined the evidence, but they've never made a decision for Jesus Christ. One of the blessings of my ministry is sometimes having the privilege of being in a location of helping bring that person to making that point of decision. As I've worked with teenagers for 35 years, I've seen a shift in our world and our culture. 35 years ago, many times you could share the gospel with a teenager and because of the Sunday school background that he had from being sent to church by parents who didn't go themselves, they knew who Jesus was, they knew the basic truths, and you just had to share the salvation message. Today in youth ministry, it's a whole different ballgame. Today we're living in a world where many young people and adults have no frame of reference for Jesus. And so today I find many times the salvation process is sometimes like a continuum. And a lot of the kids in school, a lot of people in our world that we work with, if, um, if here is the point of salvation on the continuum, they're over here at negative five. They, they don't know anything about the claims of Jesus. When I was first in ministry, many of the kids who were unsaved were at negative one or negative two on the continuum, and all you had to do was help them take one step. Today, many times, you've got to bring them four or five steps before they're ready to make that decision for Jesus. And one of the neat things about my ministry is I don't sponsor events myself that groups send people to, but everything that I do is actually a church's event, and I get to come alongside and assist them with the event and get to share with the young people. And so, for instance, last summer I had a group that came to my cabin on a Sunday night. Um, They were from Carthage, which is up, up near Watertown. I did a canoe trip with their youth group about five years prior to this, but the teens and the leaders that came were all new to me. As they arrived at the cabin, they were all upperclassmen, um, nine of them, and the pastor and his wife. They were all fairly um, athletic. turns out that all of them played at least two high school sports. And my first impression of these nine teenagers is they're probably typical church kids. Most of them are probably believers, you know, Christian homes. But before we had our service at my cabin Sunday night, I got talking to the pastor and I said, well, tell me a little about these teens that are with you on the canoe trip. And he said, well, only one of them is from our church. The other are kids in the community that we've connected with. We've gotten them plugged into youth group. We've been studying um, scripture for um, a number of months, but he said, probably a lot of them have never really come to the point of making a decision for Jesus Christ yet. Well, this pastor had been bringing them from negative five to negative one. When they showed up at my cabin, they were at negative one. They had heard the gospel probably numerous times. So Sunday night, I shared a gospel message, and this one young man made a decision for Jesus Christ. He was the one who was from that church. We went canoeing up on the canal on Monday. 
Um, I shared a devotional at lunchtime. We got back to the cabin, had supper, and I was getting ready to speak Monday evening. They were staying over the second night at the cabin. And I had planned to share a message kind of on commitment or dedication. But as I was preparing, God was kind of laying on my heart, you know, Brian, maybe, maybe, not, maybe there's a lot of these teens that have never really taken the first step and trusted you as Savior. So I kind of changed directions, and I <clears throat> shared a, a salvation message again Monday evening, and five of these young ladies trusted Christ as their Savior. Three of them were triplets. All five of them were on the varsity soccer team this fall at Carthage High School. Half of the varsity soccer team got saved at my cabin that night. They came to the point of making a decision. Many weekends, as I asked the youth leaders ahead of time, who's coming to my cabin, they say, well, as far as we know, all the kids are saved. They're all from church families. They're all regulars in our group. And so I, I had a different track with my messages then. But sometimes God gives me an opportunity to help bring them to the point of making a decision. Back in February, um, I had a, a Mennonite group that came to my cabin from a Mennonite church. First time I'd been with them, I talked to the leader on the phone, and she said, most of our kids aren't from church families. They're kids that we've reached out to. We've got them involved in youth group. And uh, she wanted me to, to share a salvation message at the retreat, so I did. And five of them made a decision to, to trust Christ as their Savior. This morning, God is asking of us, after you've examined the evidence, make a decision. If you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel, you've come to this church or other churches, you've heard who Jesus is, that he's God's son, that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, but you've never, for whatever reason, taken that step of making that decision, God is inviting you to take that step this morning. The third thing God asked of the Israelites, after they'd examined the evidence, after they made a decision, he said, now do the logical thing and follow the God that wins the battle. This morning, God is asking of us, we here in America who've examined the evidence, we here who this morning, most of us have made a decision, yes, Jesus is God's son. He's asking us this morning to follow him wholeheartedly. And that might look different for different ones of us. But my fear this morning is that too many Americans, myself at times as well, have other gods that become just as important to us as Jehovah God. You know, I do a lot of canoe trips with youth groups, and um, not every teenager is excited about canoeing. Some teenagers are afraid of the water. And um, so picture a scenario with me, a teenage girl. Um, her youth leader gets up and announces that her youth group is going to this cabin in the woods on a Friday night, and then Saturday they're going to canoe all day. And she's thinking, this isn't an activity for me. But because they have a persuasive youth leader like Pastor Ken, he convinces her that, you know, hey, the whole youth group is going, everybody's going, you need to come, your friends are all going to be there. So she shows up at my cabin Friday night, she goes through everything that, that you've been through here at the cabin tonight, and when I finish my message, I sit down and I give them the details about tomorrow, that we're going canoeing on the Seneca-Cayuga Canal. And she's thinking, I, I just, I don't, I don't know about this part. But because I'm kind of persuasive as well, she gets some sleep that night. 
The next morning, we have breakfast here at the cabin. We get up, we drive an hour to Waterloo, where we're going to launch the canoes. We do a shuttle with the drivers, so we've got vehicles at the other end. And where we launch in Waterloo, there's a boat, cement boat ramp, and there's an aluminum dock next to it. So here's this teenage girl this morning who is fearful of canoeing. She's afraid of water. She doesn't swim well. And she's standing on the dock waiting to go canoeing. And I say, okay, gang, it's time to get in the canoes. And she's looking at this 86-pound piece of molded plastic floating in the water next to the dock. And she's thinking, I'm going to trust my life to that piece of plastic. I don't know about this. But because I'm kind of persuasive, eventually she, she decides, okay, I'm going to get my nerve up. I'm going to do this. I got my life vest on. Water's only four feet deep here anyway. And she puts slowly one foot in the middle of the canoe. Well, a force of nature takes over at that point called gravity. And the canoe starts to move away from the dock. And it moves a little further away from the dock. And it moves a little further away from the dock. And of course, it happens much quicker than this. And pretty soon, she's starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Now, let's freeze frame the situation right there. I come up to her and say, Susie, I would like you to give a testimony to the kids in your youth group about the joys and blessings and the fun of canoeing. She looks at me like, Brian, we need to call for the guys in the white coats. What do you mean the joys and blessings of canoeing? This is kind of uncomfortable. So at that point, I come up to her and I say, Susie, your problem is you've only got one foot in the canoe. You're trying to, you're trying to canoe and still keep one foot on the dock. Susie, if you would but take your other foot off the dock, put it in the canoe, sit down, and let the people in the seats in front of you and back of you do all the paddling all day, you'll have an enjoyable day. And that's the Christian life for a lot of people today. They've put one foot in the boat of Christianity. They're trying to keep one foot on the dock of the world. On Sunday, they're trying to worship the Jehovah gods. On Monday to Saturday, they're trying to worship the gods of money or popularity, possessions, family, things. And then they come to youth group or they come to church and they have a testimony time. And Pastor Ken says, okay, today I would like some of you teenagers to give a testimony about the joys and blessings of the Christian life. And you guys look at Pastor Ken like, Ken, what's up? Uh, what do you mean the joys and blessings of the Christian life? I mean, I, I wrote a school assignment about my Christian faith this last week and the teacher didn't like my subject matter. I got a bad grade. What do you mean the joys and blessings of the Christian life? Or we're thinking, you know, I, I invited one of my friends to youth group and they, they laughed at me. They made fun of me. What do you mean the joys and blessings of the Christian life? And the problem is we're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity. And the message for us this morning from this passage of Scripture is if God be God, follow Him. And I have to periodically look at my own life. I'm in full-time ministry, and I have to ask myself, am I totally following God? Or have some of these other things in my life 
gradually been elevated to the level of God's. And I'm trying to follow God and this other thing. And I'm frustrated. Things aren't going well. Three things. Examine the evidence. Make a decision. Follow the God that you decide. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close the service here at the cabin this evening. I know this evening that most of you, maybe all of you, have examined the evidence. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard the evidence. Maybe, maybe you're a guest this morning and we, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you come back. But maybe you've never really examined the evidence for the claims of who Jesus is. This morning, God's challenge to you is to examine the evidence. This morning, God's challenge to us is after we examine the evidence to make a decision. Being in my home church this morning, I know most of you have made a decision that yes, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Yes, I believe that he's God's son, that he came, that he lived, that he was crucified, buried, and rose again. And you've repented and put your trust in Jesus. But I don't want to make the assumption here this morning that everybody has done that. Just like I never make that assumption at my cabin. My first impression of those nine teenagers from Carthage last summer is, hey, they look like sharp Christian kids. They look like they're probably grounded in the faith. And I'd have been totally wrong. And this morning, it's not how you look to me, how you look to the person sitting next to you. It's have you ever made that decision? Yes, I'm, I've, I've examined the evidence. I'm going to take the step and put my trust in Jesus as my Savior. You can do that right here this morning by coming to God and saying, God, I admit that I've sinned. God, I understand that there's a wage or a penalty for that sin, and that penalty is separation from you forever. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you claim to be, that you are the Son of God, and I believe that you you came and lived and died and rose again, that I could be forgiven for my sin. Jesus, this morning, come into my life as my Savior and Lord. Lord, I want to, Jesus, I want to pin all of my hopes for my eternal destiny on you. Jesus, thank you for coming in. And if you just prayed that prayer with me this morning and really meant it, I would encourage you to come up to someone after the service and say, hey, you know, this morning... I took that step. I made that decision. And then third, God is asking of us to follow the God that we've decided is truly God. And I think sometimes the longer we've been in church, the longer we've been in Christianity, sometimes we let other things creep in and become other gods. And God is no more happy with us at that point than he was with the Israelites. And he's saying to us this morning, if God be God, follow him. And maybe you need to take a moment this morning in silence and just say, hey God, you know, if I'm honest this morning, 
there's some other things in my life that have become God's. You know, I, I say that I'm following you, but my use of time doesn't substantiate that. God, I say that I'm following you, but my, my check mark, my checkbook doesn't substantiate that. God, I say that I'm following you, but my, my speech, my conduct doesn't substantiate that. This morning, God, forgive me. And help me this morning to put away the Baal gods and the Asherah gods of American culture and follow you wholeheartedly. Just talk to God right now.